Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. The technical pieces of how paints and gels and pigments, all of that works. That's like learning the musical scales and practicing them, but that's not the art of painting. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we talk with your favorite artists about how to get better at painting. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers, and the voice you just heard is mixed media artist Sandra Duran Wilson. But before we get into the show, a few housekeeping notes. September was a month, so I'm taking October off to prep the final two shows of season two, which will come your way in November. Then it's winter break in December. But I am fast at work on season three, and I need your help. I want to know the questions you wish I were asking. I want to know which artists you wish I were asking them to. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash survey to share your opinion. It takes five minutes and will shape season three. All right, on to the show. Today I'm talking with Sandra Duran Wilson. In the interview, you'll learn why creativity is your greatest tool, how to manage the gremlin voice inside your head, and why it's so important to listen to those first thoughts. Also, we get technical and discuss gels, pace, and mediums, including how to know which to grab when you're working with collage, plus a whole lot more. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 20 for show notes. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter list and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. All right, here we go. Hi, Sandra. Welcome to the podcast. How did you get into art? Hi, Kelly, and thanks for having me here. Like a lot of artists, you know, I was just always a curious kid and did art, but I grew up in an unusual family in that they were both scientists and artists. And so I always used both of those from the very beginning. And my great aunt, who was an artist, taught my brothers and I from like the age of five or six, we had formal oil painting lessons. Wow. So she really introduced you to sort of that there are people who are artists and approach it seriously. Yes, I did have that example in my family, which a lot of people don't get that. You know, if people want to be an artist, they're told, oh, no, go go pick a real career. Don't do that. And not that my great aunt taught me. She goes, it's very, very difficult She didn't make it sound easy, but they didn't discourage me either. And so as a a child, we learn more from seeing what people do rather than what they're saying. And so seeing both scientists and artists in my family and understanding that there really wasn't this disconnect, I never grew up with that belief that I couldn't do both science and art. And a lot of people, I think, have that disconnect. How did you find acrylics specifically? I went back to university when I was in my 30s. And I had always been an oil painter before that. I was going to school in the city that was an hour drive away. And I was working full time. So I was commuting back and forth. And I had to put my large painting, my car to take them back and forth. And I couldn't do that with oil. So I switched to acrylic. And it was quite a learning curve, but I became intrigued by the process and also by all of the additives like the gels and the paste and the mediums, all of these different things that I had never experimented with in oils. So having a background in chemistry, I just love to mix things up. So I was just very drawn to acrylics in that potential of combinations of things to help people know where we are. Let's talk about the materials you use. What type of paints do you use? I use acrylic paint and not necessarily loyal to any particular brand. I do tend toward 
a viscosity of paint called soft body or fluid paint. And a viscosity is the thickness or the runniness of a material. And I use that as my base paint. And if I want to make it thicker, then I can add a gel to it. So when you are working with that, you can alter the viscosity to achieve different results. And for me, the reason I really love acrylics is that I can build these layers using some of the clear gels in order to create this illusion of depth. I mean, our eyes can detect microns of depth and you're looking at a painting and you might not understand how that happened, but you can see that there are layers and depth. And that's what I really enjoy about acrylic paints and gels and pastes. So then in your acrylic paints, in the pigments themselves, do you tend more toward opaque paints or transparent paints, or does it matter? I tend to work with the most transparent paints because I am building layers, and then I'll come back in and I'll introduce the opaque paints to create opacity because it's that uh, push-pull, that difference where you're going to see that depth. Yes, I do tend to use the more transparent paints. But it sounds like you say that you use them primarily in the beginning. Hmm. It's really hard to say. I might use them interchangeably. I have what I call a precious preservation layer. I teach my students. And it's like when I've kind of created an area that I really like, then I'll put a gloss medium over it. And that way, when I add more layers of paint and I want to remove some, that layer is going to protect everything that's below it. Because I do what I call it the painter's dance, is I'll put some on and I take some off. And it's like every painting is like a a dance. And that becomes, you just have to tune into that. And, And that's more of the process. I mean, the technical pieces of how paints and gels and pigments, all of that works. That's like learning the musical scales and practicing them. But that's not the art of painting. Could you give us an overview of your process? I want to give you an overview of the creative process first, and then I that'll help you understand where my process of painting comes from. But I think the most important thing that an artist can possess, it's not any medium or paint or anything, it's curiosity. And that is your most important skill that you can possess. And you can develop curiosity, but curiosity will spark your imagination. And once you're imagining something, then you're going to begin to explore it. And maybe you're just exploring it in your mind, but then it's going to lead to action. And the action is learning those skills, like those scales. So then you're going to practice and you're going to get skills. And that leads to more experience so that the next time you create a painting, then you're going to remember, oh, I did that and I got this result. That's kind of where my science background comes in. But probably the greatest thing is to trust in your process. And then you can begin again. And here's where I like to think of it as like walking up a spiral staircase that as you're going up, you're repeating these lessons, but you're getting a new perspective. And then you take that information and you transform it. And this creative process can be used with painting or in reinventing your life. And they both work the same. Does that make sense, Kelly? It does. And what I hear you saying is that it's always evolving. Exactly. So when I take that and I approach my painting, the first thing I do is I'm understanding why. So the process of why am I going to create this painting? What do I want it to say? And not every painting begins this way. I usually work on anywhere from three to six paintings at a time. And the reason I do that is because I don't have a lot of patience. And I've learned that if I let something dry and cure sufficiently before I move to the next layer, then I don't get muddy colors. So I can put something on one painting and then I can move over to a different one. So that's an important part of my process. I can think about design, composition, all of those kind of things will come into play. 
But the first thing I want to think about is why. And many times I begin the painting with writing a word or a sentence or even a poem onto the panel or the canvas. And that informs where my intention and my emotion is going to go to in this creative process. I look at it as a collaboration between myself and the painting because I have learned to listen and respond to what I see. I feel like I'm almost a tool that I put the paint on, I create something, and then I have to stand back and I have to look and I have to respond. And then I do that again. And it is trusting in that process. It's a dance. For you, why is it important to have a very clear intention when going into a painting? How does that help guide you? Say if I were doing a landscape painting and perhaps I began the painting on site, I'm outside, I'm looking at the scene that I want to paint and I begin my painting quickly. It's done spontaneously. It's done in that moment. You're feeling the, the sun on you, the breeze, the smell of the flowers. This all becomes a part of the process. So that is kind of the emotion behind the intent. So when you move over into abstract painting, how do you recreate that process? And I recreate it for me by concepts. And I paint a lot of scientific concepts. I'm sitting here in my office and I have a painting. It's called Invisible Matter. And experimental physics is an interest of mine. And looking at quantum physics and dark matter is of interest to me. And I created a painting based on that. And I've created other paintings based on quarks and muons and different ideas in physics. So I have to have this idea, and then I begin to use my imagination of what might that feel like to be floating out in the universe. You know, it it can go anywhere, but if I bring a title or a name to it, it brings that emotion to me just as if I were out, you know, on the hillside painting the landscape. It sort of speaks to this, that when someone is out painting a landscape, they've already chosen what they're painting. And that gives them also sort of a sense of when they're finished. And I think one of the Mm. challenges of non-representational painting, abstract painting, is that when you sit down, you have all the possibilities, like all the possibilities exist. And so where does someone begin? And then how do they know when they're done? Mm -hmm. So two parts to that. The overwhelm part, where do I begin? There's so many possibilities with all of the the materials. And especially when you start to move into mixed media, it even becomes even more overwhelming in a sense. So this is what I tell my students. I said, pick out three to four things that you want to bring into that painting, whether it be maybe some collage, perhaps a type of colors you're going to use, or maybe a paste or a gel. And one other idea that you might incorporate. So you've got to limit what you're going to do. Now, when you set this groundwork, then you might look at the surface you're going to paint on, because that's as important as what you paint. So if you're painting on a square, as opposed to a long skinny shape, that's going to inform your composition. If you're painting small as opposed to really large, that's going to inform your composition. So those things will also go into the point of how do you know when you're done? And that question is probably the one asked the most, and there's no one answer to it. You have to make a lot of paintings. (laughs) And I mean, you know, I've made thousands of paintings and sometimes I'm still like, I'll look at one and it's like, Uh, I don't know if it's done or not. And maybe it goes out to a show or a gallery and it comes back and I put it away and then I bring it back out a year or so later and I look at it. It's like, oh, I know exactly what it needs. Because when you continue to paint and to work, your knowledge base expands. And so you can look at something with fresh eyes, you know, a year later with more knowledge. But how do you know if it's done when you're working on it in that moment? My best advice to students is take it and rotate it, especially with the abstract work. 
you want to rotate it, look at it for like maybe a whole day in that orientation and then rotate it again. Go around the clock, look at it, see how you feel when you first see it with fresh eyes. Put it away for maybe a week, bring it back out and look at it again. And you're going to start to know. I mean, of course, there are all these elements of composition and things like that that you could critique it. And those are good too. But it really comes down to a gut feeling, I think, in the end. When you start with a word or a poem or a scientific concept, what are the questions and answers that you sort of have to decide before you begin? There's a couple of things in the process. And one of these is more of a conceptual thing. I'll just discuss briefly and then I'll kind of break down the actual process. But I call it first thought. And that really comes down to understanding your story, understanding your why. And it's like, just for example, say you walked in this studio and you said, oh, I want to take this jar of this medium and I want to just spread it all over this canvas and mix this in and see what happens. And that little critical voice in your head goes, no, 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 that's too expensive. You're going to waste that and it's not going to work. So, so don't do that. But your first thought was to do that. Learn to trust first thought and to honor it and follow through with it. It's a hard one for most people because they're so used to listening to that little gremlin voice. And this gets you to that other place of the why. Why are you doing this? Perhaps you're feeling anxious and you want to create something that's going to relieve you of that anxiety. Perhaps you want to create something beautiful to share serenity with someone. So let's just take, for example serenity. And maybe that's the intention I want to put out there. So I might think of the inside or the backstory of what is serenity for me. And that process is going to be different for everybody. I call this journey the what if wonderings. And that could be either wonder, like I wonder what, or wanderings, like just kind of wander all over the place. That questioning, the process is a place to begin the idea. But then you have to have the actual physical, you have to have the place of where you're going to go with next. And that comes into your design elements and composition. And again, these are laws. You know, we have defined areas of like line, shape. All of these things are written down for us to understand what would make a good composition So then you have to understand how does the composition influence the feeling that you want to express? So if I'm wanting to express serenity, I'm imagining a pretty minimalist color range, perhaps not a lot of visual shapes or elements, not a lot of pattern. It could have texture, but perhaps it's more a feeling of You know, I'm seeing the texture, but it's still all in the same color. So I'm getting a a much different feeling than if I wanted to create the feeling of excitement. And there I have lots of little things going on. You know, it's like the difference between sitting on a, a riverbank watching a river flow by or being in the middle of a carnival, you know, at the midway. Two different feelings. Visually they're going to look very different. People have this idea, I think, about abstract painting specifically, about that it's very fast. What you're talking about is slowing down and being really present in the intent. That to find the intent, do you have to slow down? I don't think so. I mean, it depends. Like I said, okay, I think when you are in the process, and I will just say that a lot of my process happens before I even go into the studio and pick up a brush. A lot of my process is happening in my mind. And I might be thinking about the feeling behind it, the inspiration behind it. 
the actual physical things of how can I make this texture happen? I love textures, so I'm always exploring that. So all of these things might be running through my head long before I actually go in and make it happen. So people will sometimes ask me and they'll say, oh, well, how long did that take you to make? And I think that's the question people ask when they want to start a conversation about a painting. And that's really the only question they know how to ask. So I never really answer it with, oh, it took me 34 and a half hours, you know, because that's irrelevant. But as Picasso said, when someone asked him that same question about a little doodle on a napkin he had made, he said, oh, it took me two minutes and 40 because all of your history of doing this goes into making that little doodle. Listening to you talk, I'm really struck by how part of learning to paint abstractly is materials. It is what are gels, what are mediums, when you use them. But it's also learning to listen to that first thought. And then also dealing with the inner gremlin that bats it away, like almost like building muscles, learning to hear it, and then learning to give it value. You said it perfectly. Yes, that's, that's it. <laughs> so let's transition into gels and pace. For someone who's just getting started, what are gels and pace? Gels and paste are, I look at them as the building blocks of acrylic. It's just the acrylic polymer. There's no pigment. So a gel is going to be white when it's wet, but it's going to be clear when it dries. A paste is white when it's wet, but it remains white after it dries. So we're looking at transparency versus opacity. So when someone is looking at something you know, someone hands me a, a jar of something and I open it up and I think, you know, what the heck is this? <laughs> what sort of questions should I be asking myself about it in terms of then using those answers to figuring out how to use it? I'm going to go back to the, the two words. We're going to go back to viscosity, just the fancy word for how thick something is or how easy it flows and transparency. So when you walk into an art supply store and you look at these shelves and they are full of all of these different jars of acrylic. And so take gels, for example. So the things we're looking at here are viscosity. Is it soft, regular, heavy, extra heavy, and opacity? You might look at, okay, there's soft gel gloss. There's regular gel gloss heavy gel gloss, extra heavy gel. Then there might be all of those, but they might be satin or semi-gloss. All of those, and they might be matte, viscosity, and opacity. Your gloss is going to be your clearest. The semi-gloss is just that, so it'd be kind of between transparent and semi-transparent. When you get to matte, it's going to be a little less transparent, but it's not going to be opaque. A matte has particulates within the gel that deflect the light. So that's what makes it look matte. But those little particulates also diffuse, say, what's below it. So if you want something to be very clear as you're building up layers, then you would use the gloss. So if I want create an effect. Like say somebody gave me a jar of gel and it's a gloss and it's a heavy gel. So that is going to create a thicker layer. So if I took my knife and applied it, and I usually use a knife to apply all my gels and paste, and I use the knife to apply that and let's say I took the knife and think of it like you're frosting a cake and you kind of pull the knife up and it creates a peak with the gel. And because it's a heavy gel, that peak is going to stay. It's going to like keep that peakness about it. Whereas if I used a soft gel and I did that, it's going to want to tend to kind of mold back down. It's not going to be super smooth, but it's not going to hold that peak. So I would ask myself, how thick of a layer do I want to put? I could use my knife to create a fairly thin layer 
of gel. But compared to, say, a, a medium, that would be like 10 layers of the medium. So it's like, how do I want to create depth and texture? Those are the differences in that type of viscosity is what is the texture you want to create? So then when you get into paste, those are the ones that are white when they're wet and they're going to dry white. And then you have things like molding or modeling paste and light molding or modeling paste. And even within those, there's some hybrids and there are some different viscosities. And with a paste, I love to explore with the paste because even with um, a thin layer, I can kind of mask an area out. So what I mean by that is let's say I've been working on something and I've got a lot of color and a lot of busyness and I feel like I need to push some of that back, meaning I need to veil it. So that's where paste can come in very handy. Now, if I put a thick layer of the light molding paste on, it's going to pretty well cover it, make it pretty opaque. Or even if I mix some white paint into that, it would make it really opaque. What if I wanted to just kind of veil it? Like, you know, the idea of putting like a thin scarf over something. And that's where I could put the light molding paste over the surface. And it almost makes it look like wax. It's a way of veiling something. And your most opaque is going to be the molding or modeling paste, not the light. But so you think of light molding or modeling paste. And I, the reason I use the two different words is golden calls theirs molding. Everybody else calls it modeling. So they're interchangeable. But the light molding paste is like regular molding paste that you've injected air into. So it's more like a meringue. And it's just an interesting little tidbit of why they developed light molding paste is because molding paste itself is very heavy. It's got a lot of particulate. It's got a lot of matter in it. So if you're painting a very large stretched canvas and you're putting a lot of this molding paste on there, over time, the weight of that is literally going to pull that canvas off your stretcher bars. And I've seen it happen. And I mean, it's a big painting and it's a lot of paste. But they came up with a light modeling paste to take care of that issue. I just did a, a YouTube video. It's on my YouTube channel, Mixed Media Soul Sparks. And it's just done experimenting with using different gels and paste by themselves and putting them onto a surface, then letting that dry, you kind of want to put them on and lightly blend them. You don't want to make it all the same. You don't want to homogenize it. Then when you let that dry, you come back in with a paint and you brush the paint over and you'll really see how those different gels and paste affect how the paint sits on the surface. For the paste, like a light molding paste, the paint's going to go right into it. A molding paste, it'll kind of go in, but not like a gloss. It's going to be very, maybe even want to resist sitting on top of that. So it's a great way to understand what all these different products do. Where do you suggest someone start? When people are starting out, these are my suggestions. And there's another area besides gels and paste, and it's called mediums. So there's like gloss medium and there's matte medium. So I suggest you start with a gloss medium, a regular or soft gel gloss, and a molding paste. Just those three will keep you entertained for months. <laughs> so, and you can get an, an amazing array of effects using just those three and either putting them directly on a surface, letting them dry, and then putting paint on top, or by mixing paint in, you get very different effects. So with these gels and mediums and pastes, they're polymer-based, so they're, they completely work with acrylics. Yeah, they are the building blocks of acrylics. So one of the best things that I like about acrylics, and a lot of experienced acrylic artists I know of, 
they never use gels and paste. They just use straight paint. But I always let my students know that they're going to recover the cost of a workshop just by the amount of money they will save in paint. Because if you want to extend your paint, then you put some in with a medium or a gel and your paint is going to go so much further. And when you buy products, when you buy paint, you're paying for pigment. So it's going to be a lot more expensive than just buying a jar of plastic. I mean, basically, that's what acrylic is. It's plastic. It's an acrylic polymer. So when you're buying a gel, it's just the acrylic polymer. There's no pigment. So if you want to paint a big painting and you want your paint to go a long way, take some of your paint and put it in with that gel and you're going to use about a quarter of what amount of paint you would use otherwise. And that is one of my favorite things about using gels and paste is that it becomes an extension. It becomes a paint extender. How much collage do you use in your work? I like to use collage in my pieces. Sometimes I'll use it as a background to jumpstart a piece. I have a lot of old books, especially old calculus books. So I found a really good use for calculus books, <laughs> putting those pages in. <laughs> you know, I find it just adds another layer, whether you can read the, the language or if you can see the formulas. I also used a lot of my old statistics books doing this. And it becomes like shapes. I like to look at letters or graphs as just another element of design. But sometimes I will use collage as the final touches, little parts of things. And I even make acrylic skins that I then cut up into shapes and will collage that on. So it's a collage in a sense that it's cut and paste, but it's deeper. It's, it's not something else. It's just acrylic paint. What are acrylic skins and how does someone make them? You just get a piece of plastic, even like a page protector from the office supply store. A friend of mine gave me a stack of them. And so I discovered, oh, these are great for making paint skins on. And let's say you're working on something and you have mixed your paint and with your gel, like I suggested, and then you have some left over. And you can take that and you can put it on to the plastic and you could also use um, a painter's drop cloth plastic or a plastic cutting board will also work. It has to be HDPE plastic, which those three things I just named are all that type of plastic. When the paint or the gel dries, you're able to peel it off of the plastic. And you can either then adhere it as is or you can cut that into shapes. The key to it is, is that it has to be thick enough to where you can really peel it and cut it. If it's really thin, there's another way to do it. And I'm working on a YouTube video for that coming up. So you can't, I can't really explain that one on radio. You really have to see that one. But it's called a gel skin or a paint skin. It's the best way to do it. And that kind of brings me back to another thing that I do a lot is I call it the throwaway masterpiece. So when I'm working on, let's say I'm working on three paintings at a time and I've like mixed up some color and some paste and I put it on this one and I decide, oh, I don't want to put it on those other two. It doesn't go. But I have, I always have an extra piece of paper or canvas or panel around and I just put the leftovers on there and then I keep it in the studio. And so the next time I find I have some leftovers, I apply it there. And it's not like I'm just building up color on top of color. I'm kind of intuitively placing color, gels, paste onto this canvas. And after a while, I go over there and I look at it and it's like, I discover color combinations that I may never have thought to do. But because I'm not attached to the outcome of that piece, it becomes very spontaneous. It becomes, it teaches me so much. For collage, one of the things that we haven't mentioned is that gels and mediums can be used as glue to put collage material down as well. Correct. And here's a rule of thumb that I tell my students. You want to match the viscosity of your acrylic product to the weight of what you want to collage. So let's say I have a very lightweight tissue paper and I want to glue that on. 
So I'm going to use the gloss medium or matte medium, but that medium viscosity as opposed to a gel. So then if I have a regular paper, you know, like say the weight of a piece of copy paper, I could use the soft gel gloss. That's really my most go-to glue is soft gel gloss. And I like the gloss because I can build layers with it. It's not going to obscure something else. And in my final painting, I can always unify the sheen. But if I have a heavy paper, like say a heavy corrugated cardboard or heavier paper, then I'm going to use the heavy gel to glue that on because I need something that's going to hold those peaks, like what we talked about, to be able to stand up to a more textured or heavier piece of paper. So those are all of your gluing options and you will have them covered with two or three products. It's just amazing what you can do with these products. It is. It's mind-boggling. It's also a little overwhelming, but also amazing. That's why I say when you start out, you want to limit yourself. You don't want to try and use every product out there. You'll never get something decent. But to really understand where they're useful, then you have that to reach for and you know, oh, okay, this is what I use that one for. And, um, and the end of it, you can also unify your final sheen if you want. You can use those acrylic products to do that too. It sounds a little bit silly to say, but one of the things that I would recommend to people is just spend some time, honestly, learning how to read the labels of <laughs> the different. Because yeah. I feel like it took me like three years to learn where Golden kept the information. And then like once you learn where on the label Golden keeps the information, it kind of stays there. Like they do a good, a pretty good job of that. But it really did take me like three years of being like, wait, okay, that's that's the logo. Okay, that, that says gel. Okay, parentheses, gla- okay, okay. It takes a little bit of time. Now that you've learned all that, they've changed their they've changed their packaging. I always <laughs> I go, I'm always calling it a polymer medium gloss, and now it's just called gloss medium. And uh-huh. it's like, really, people, come on. <laughs> Golden's website has some very good tutorials on all of this that uh, explains the viscosities and the transparencies, and it's a, a very helpful website. I'm glad you mentioned the website because it really is. Golden does a really lovely job of explaining the complexities of their materials and how great that they are complex. And with that said, though, there are variations from company to company. Like Golden, I particularly like their gels and paste. Liquitex makes them also, but they have certain differences. And then there's TriArt. I call them the Golden of Canada because they have the same properties, but they make a couple of things that nobody else makes. And then there's Matisse out of Australia and there's Italian paint companies. And so I travel all over the world teaching and and I try and find the products that are where people live that they can get. And there's slight differences. So just because you've bought a molding or modeling paste from one brand, it's not going to be exactly the same across a different brand. So those are some other little quirks. And it's true with paints, too, that a quinacridone gold from Golden is going to be different than a quinacridone gold from Holbein. Where in your process do you really begin to consider composition? Before I even start the piece, I um, consider the composition. If you opened up my sketchbook, you would see a lot of writing and a little tiny thumbnail sketch with a few lines. And the writing might have to do with the concept, the feeling. It might have to do with the colors I want to use, the products I want to use. And then the little thumbnail sketch would be if I'm working on a rectangle, a square, or an odd-shaped piece. And that is going to inform my composition a lot, is the shape of my painting. Then I start to look at all the basic designs of a composition, which, you know, you can look all of those up online, but we're looking at how we begin to place things. You want the viewer to have a place of entry and to be able to move through the painting. And that's where your compositional skills 
with not only the shapes, the line, the colors will also move you around uh, composition. Composition and design is like years of study, but I have a, a YouTube video I just that just came out that was really a great way to work with that, and it's something I still do to this day. Can I explain it to you quickly? Please, yeah. Okay. So I gather, like, I have magazines that, and if you don't have magazines, you can usually find them at secondhand stores or libraries or whatever. And and I just kind of go through the magazines and I see color combinations I might be drawn to. I see shapes. And this is usually coming out of ads that I'm seeing. Like, I like to get home decor magazines and you might see an ad for tiles or pillows or, and I'll take my scissors and I cut out a shape of it, not the whole thing necessarily. I start to cut out parts of these images. Then I start to group them by maybe I have a bunch of lines, maybe they're straight lines, maybe they're squiggly lines, maybe I have black and white, I have blues, I have greens, and I just have these all on my table. And then I get my my notebook and scissors and a glue stick, and I go through and I start to cut out parts of these. And I use the glue stick to create a composition. And it's going to really teach you about how you visually see composition faster than any amount of academic study will ever do. It's just doing it. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. And then after you get all that on your page, if you take two little L's, you know, say if you took a piece of map board that was like for a piece you were going to frame and you cut it in half. So you have two L shapes that you can make your viewing window and you go around your little composition and you're going to discover all these little jewels within the thing you just made. So from doing something like that, I might come up with ideas for six or seven paintings just from one image alone. In your sketchbooks, then do you think through, for example, like would you, if you have an intent that you know or concept, would you then sort of think through, okay, what kind of lines would convey that? Oh, maybe lines wouldn't help convey that. So it won't be line heavy. Okay, what kind of color would help convey that? I mean, do you sort of slowly, or not slowly, because you've been doing this for a while now, but do you sort of think through all the elements and principles and think about how they will help you convey that intent before you start painting? I think I do it now almost on a subconscious level. But in the beginning, I would do that and I'd sit down and I'd have all of these ideas and sketches and I'd have multiple books of either writing or even some of the little pieces I just described making or an idea for a color combination. And let's say I was preparing for an exhibition and I knew I needed to do 30 paintings for the exhibition. First, I'd come up with a theme for the exhibition and then I'd start to go through my journals, my notebooks, and I'd start to look at those as like, oh, that fits in. And I create the story around how that fits in to the painting. And it's like maybe a theme is about galaxies and where we fit in the universe. So not only do I have astrophysics, but I have spirituality and philosophy of how do we enter into this space together. So as I flip through those things, I'm looking in my notebooks about how that might fit. It's like, oh, I like that color composition. And I need this many pieces. I need so many sizes. You know, I need so many big pieces, so many little pieces. Those also influence what I make. So that's kind of the process I go through. But once I sit down to start making the painting, and let's say I've gone through all of that process in my mind, I've got a sketch of what I want that painting to look like. I've got a title for it, even before I begin sometimes. I've got my color palette. I've got all of it planned out. Boom, I start to work and I get the first layers on and I'm working. And then the painting's telling me, uh-uh, nope, I've got my own ideas. And it becomes a battle of will <laughs> because I'm trying to impose what I think it should be. And the painting is going, no, 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 I've got a better idea. And sometimes I win very, very rarely. Usually it's the painting. <laughs> How do you balance 
listening to the painting versus getting distracted by a whim. And what I mean by that is that sounds negative in a way I don't intend it to be, but that because there are so many options at all times with abstract work, how do you keep it true to the intent without getting distracted by like, oh, yellow is beautiful and it goes with blue. And then suddenly like you have a yellow painting that has nothing to do with the original intent versus the painting telling you like, actually, I, I want to be something different. How do you balance all of that? Well, sometimes I do that by, like I said, working on multiple pieces at a time. So if I have, you know, this is the painting I want to create and it's got a lot of green in it, but yet, you know, I'm wanting to this yellow to come in there, but yet that yellow doesn't go with that green. So I come over and I put the green over on another piece and I don't have intention for that other piece, but that other piece may inadvertently become the painting I was originally thinking about. If my will is so stuck on painting A that I want to create it this way and I'm just pushing through, but yet the painting is pushing back or I'm having this thought of like, well, wouldn't yellow be nice? Then I go over and I put that yellow on painting B and I continue that dance back and forth between painting A and painting B. And when I'm finished, painting B might actually have turned out to be more of what my original intent was. And I don't know that until I walk that journey. And I can start with every idea, all these things I've told you. And two minutes later, after starting, it all goes out the window. I mean, (laughs) that's the freedom we have. (laughs) I changed my mind. (laughs) What I love about what you just said is that you don't just tell it no. And thinking about listening, learning to listen to those voices and give them space to be voices. You're not just telling it no. You're saying like, okay, I see you. Let's let's maybe work on you over here. But then it still exactly. gives it validity. Exactly. It's like if you try and squelch that voice, you might close the door, slam the door. But that doesn't mean they're not back there behind that door yelling at you still. (laughs) So it's important to find that outlet for that voice because, you know, we might call it a gremlin voice, but that might be your best creative voice trying to come through because we just don't recognize what it is yet. So give it the power, give it the space to go be developed. So perhaps it's raw, perhaps it's undisciplined, but you know what? that might inform your most authentic painting. And that kind of goes back to the other question of when is something finished? And I just want to address this quickly because many times in workshops, I have seen a student create an amazing piece in just a matter of a few minutes. And I'll walk over to the other table and I'll come back five minutes later and I'm like, where did that painting go? And they're like, oh, it's under there. And it's like, what? I mean, I've literally taken pieces away from people and put it across the room. So I'm going to leave that over there for a little while, okay? Because they don't feel that it took them long enough to make a good painting. And I say, it's nothing about time. Some paintings are birthed instantly and others take agonizing years to give them birth. So don't judge it just because you made something beautiful in 10 minutes. It's finished. It doesn't have to be continued to be pushed. In fact, you're going to ruin it and then you're going to spend the next four hours trying to get it back. That's where you really have to trust. And that's the gremlin voice that's telling you it's not good enough. It didn't take you long enough. It's not real. And that's when you stand up to it and say, no, it is real. It just took a few minutes because we worked together (laughs) and you tell it to go sit down for a while. Why do you think that gremlin voice is so prevalent and so loud? Like, it's like we have all these beautiful, good ideas that are there, but they have to, you have to find them under this yelling, angry thing. Maybe not even angry, but just like this yelling thing. It's it's society. I mean, as children, we're told to behave, sit down, listen, you know, do your lessons, do this, don't do that. 
And as Jung calls it, you know, by the time we're adults, we're dragging around this long sack of everything we've stuffed into this bag. And that's our shadow. And in one of my books, I talk about working with the shadow. And it's about pulling out all of those things that we've stuffed back in there. And these are usually the gremlin voices. Oh, you know, wasting your time. You're wasting money. Nobody's going to like that. You're not good enough. So all of those things come into play. And so many people won't even try art because what does art do? It makes all of those shadow parts of ourselves visible. And if somebody doesn't want to look at that, then they don't want to paint. So we really have to work through this process. And it's one of the most liberating and healing things you can do is to create. One of the challenges you've learned to sort of deal with this gremlin voice, but then there comes a point where you have to analyze and critique your work. What's the difference between critiquing and just being mean to yourself? How do you suggest people talk to themselves about their work? You pretend it's somebody else's work. I mean, critique groups are really good, and I've been in critique groups for years. You can be in a critique group with you know people nearby. You can be in a critique group online. But when you're in a critique group, there's certain kind of ground rules that you're working from. You're talking about the painting. You're analyzing the composition. You know how might you improve it, and you're thinking of this in a constructive way. So if a person is looking at their work their own work, and I see this happen a lot in workshops, they're sitting there and they're working on a piece and the person sitting next to them or even at the next table, they're like, oh, that's beautiful. And they're looking at theirs going, oh, I can't stand this. Then we take a break and I have everybody walk around and look at everybody else's, you know, and everybody's doing this. Everybody's going like, oh, I can't stand mine, but I like theirs. And then the other people come and they're like, oh, they really love your piece. So it's like we're just wanting to be comparing ourselves to others. It has to do with not trusting that voice. So when you begin to look at your painting, imagine that this is done by a dear, dear friend of yours. And you're looking at it to critique it for them. And you're going to give them constructive criticism. So you're going to be kind, you're going to be gentle, but you're going to be honest. So that's the best way to do it. You can find more about Sandra Duran Wilson, including her workshops at her website, sandraduranwilson.com on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. You can also find links there to awakeningyourcreativesoul.com. We'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Sandra. Thank you, Kelly, for having me. It's been a pleasure getting to talk with you again after so many years. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 20 for show notes. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter list and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you want to email me, email learntopaintpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you in November. Happy painting.